Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. As I said earlier, we start a new series today called The Practice of Patience. And the practice of patience requires certain things of us. The first sermon in this month's series is the practice of waiting. How many of you guys wait well? We don't live in a culture that waits well. Remember uh, when I was training for a half marathon, and this has not been recently, as you could tell. It was a long time ago. I used to be a runner, but it takes a toll on your legs and your joints. And uh, when I actually started running um, the race, there are these people, for lack of a better term, called pacers, and they carry sticks with the time to end the race on. Like, if you want to run at a certain pace, you follow the pacers, okay, not the athletic team which I'm not an athletic guy, so that's going to be hurled back at me because I'm just not an athlete. But, but these pacers would help you keep time so that you could finish at that pace. And it's a stretch. If you want to stretch yourself, you run at the one who's further ahead. If you want to drop back, then you stay at a pace with the other pacer. The question I have for you this morning is, what pace does God walk? in your life? And are you following God at his pace, or are you running ahead of him, or falling behind him to where he's out of a distance? What, it, what, what this means to walk at the pace of God is that we cannot lead God. He has to always lead us. But here's how I often do it. I often run ahead of God innocently enough. I'm not trying to, but I have good intentions. Instead of watching, listening, and following him, I take off in a sprint in the direction I think he wants me to go, only to look back and see him standing in the place where I previously was. In my good intentions, I move and work trying to accomplish so much for God. And you can say, well, Brandon, you're a pastor. That's your job. It's not my job. My job is to teach, to lead, and to preach. My job isn't to spend time alone with God. That is a discipline I should be about doing in my personal walk with him. And so I struggle with that, even as a pastor, to walk at the pace of God. I think I've got to accomplish more. I've got to do, I've got to do more. I've got to run ahead. I've got to fix this. I've got to do that. All along, while I'm doing all of this stuff, I realize that I'm walking faster than the pace of God. I make decisions. I start projects without spending time alone with God to see what he thinks about a thing before I act, only to find out that I, shouldn't have, that I should have waited instead. Do you, do you ever do that? The Old Testament prophet Isaiah, listen to what he says. Isaiah 40, verse 31. Many of you have this as a life verse. 
but they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Who are they? Those who have dedicated their lives to following God through belief and faith. The rest of the world doesn't wait. They do what they do when they want to do it, how they want to do it, because they have made themselves their own God of their own lives. But the reality is, when you're not waiting upon the true creator, and you're following your own lead, you often end up in places you should have never been in the first place. I see the world taking its orders from each other or from themselves rather than waiting upon the Lord so that their strength can be renewed. We live in a world right now, just in our own culture, where we are so divided. And, and it's not just, there's, there's, it's not like there's a blurry middle line. There is a stark divide. Supreme Court just made rulings over the past month, brought out rulings every week. And with each ruling that was decided upon, you could see the flare-ups of division. When there is a self-correcting of a person's life, there is an internal turmoil that happens. When you know the right thing to do, but you refuse to do it, there's this tension inside of you. And until you're able and willing to do the right thing you know you should do, that tension will be there. But there's another type of tension. It's this tension that keeps us from doing something, but there's a good type of tension that drives us into what is right. And that tension that sits there in the balance, driving us toward God, is the kind of tension that the Holy Spirit puts on us. We call it conviction. And when the Holy Spirit convicts, he's leading. When the Holy Spirit convicts, he's showing us a better way. But it requires something of us. It requires us to wait upon him. Now, this word for wait in the Hebrew is actually a word called, uh, let me find it here. Uh, where is it? It's down there. Elpis, E-L-P-I-S. Now, it's a Hebrew word that actually means to trust. So you could actually translate this into those who trust in the Lord shall renew their strength. Waiting requires trust. You heard me use the illustration a few weeks back where have you seen the tension in movies before where the, the enemy is running across a battlefield and they're getting closer and they're getting closer and you have these people with the flaming arrows or whatever and, and, and the commanding officer says, wait, wait, they gotta be in the right position before you launch your attack. It's hard to wait when there's an encroaching enemy upon you. But those who wait or trust in the Lord will actually renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles, they'll run 
and not be weary, they will walk and not faint. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament letter to the Romans expresses the same kind of sentiment. Let's read his words. They'll be on the screen here. I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. Romans 8, 18. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Who is he? He's talking about Jesus. And those of us in the faith, those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, those of us who have submitted our lives to him, not only through faith and belief, but following him faithfully, what we suffer now, he says, is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. If you are outside of the faith, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, what you're suffering now is due to your own devices. And you can't blame God for that. Because if you are willingly rejecting God and his son Jesus Christ, you have put yourself in square contradiction to God. You have rejected his offer of salvation through his son Jesus. And so what you're suffering now is due to your own decisions. But what about when you come to Christ? I thought suffering stopped. You'll never read that in scripture. You will never read, if you had a, a pastor, a teacher, a priest, or anybody telling you that when you come to Jesus, it's all great. Let me tell you something, it is all great and it is good, but it doesn't mean you don't suffer. But what we suffer when we come to Christ is for the right causes and the right reasons. As Jesus suffered on the cross, having been condemned to death by the world, He suffered not in vain, but took the sins of the world upon himself, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. See, through his suffering, we now have the opportunity to step into what the writer of Hebrews calls that throne room of grace with boldness and confidence. Yet what we suffer now, Paul says, is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. When is the later he's talking about? Jesus promised that he would come again. He came one time through the womb of a young lady named Mary, a virgin who conceived by the Holy Spirit, this child we would come to know as Jesus. But Jesus said before he ascended to heaven that he would return again. And so now what Paul is talking about, that later, that glory that will be revealed later is when Christ returns or when we pass from this life into life everlasting. Verse 19, for all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children are. Against its will, all of creation was subjected to God's curse. Did you see that? <clears throat> so God brought the curse. Against its will, all of creation was subjected to God's curse. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> Adam and Eve partake of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one thing God said, you can eat of any fruit of the tree in the garden except this one. Because if you eat it, you will die. And so they partook of that tree eventually. And what did they set in motion? 
death. They set in motion the degradation of the body, the weakening of the fabric of all of creation. All of the human created, or all of the created order from the beginning of time to now since the fall has been in a slow, progressive state of death. Why does somebody get cancer? Why does somebody get uh, Parkinson's disease? Why does this thing happen and that thing happen? What? It is a part of the fall. And the only solution to the fall is Christ. We can become new creations in Christ. Yes, he can bring healing to the body if he so chooses in the here and now. But even if he doesn't, those who are in Christ have a hope for life everlasting. This curse that was brought, we wait eagerly for the solution to that. The creation looks forward to the day, Paul says, when it will join God's children in this glorious freedom from death and decay. You see what Adam and Eve and the rest of humanity beyond them set in motion, this sin and death and this degradation of everything on a macro and micro level? <clears throat> the whole of creation is experiencing it. Trees die, limbs fall out of trees, animals die. And so it says, Paul reminds us, it's not just humanity that suffers. Because of what humanity did, everything got broken. Everything is moving toward this terminal end called death. And the only solution to that is Christ. And so now we eagerly await his return. Even creation awaits its return and you can hear the groaning of creation through volcanoes exploding and erupting and earthquakes shaking the ground and ripping apart. The whole of creation groans in great anticipation, awaiting the day of Christ's return. For we know that all of creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time in verse 23. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of that future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. How many of you long to be released from the body that aches and pains and that suffers from time to time? And we wait, and like, oh, as I'm getting older, and I'm not as old as many of you, and you say, oh, shut up, you're too young to be saying that. But my body doesn't rebound the way it used to. I don't fall and jump back up. I fall and lay there for a while. You know what I mean? I mean, just a few years ago, I fell off the roof, and I'm doing, I did, it was fun. And I fell off the roof, and I'm laying there in almost this chalk outline formation on top of the ladder that was supposed to be holding me up. And I'm taking an assessment of my body. It's, my shoe was way off over on the other side of the deck. And I'm like, okay, so I'm barefoot on one foot. And, and you just don't rebound, right? My body was groaning for three months because I had a bruised heel bone. And I was on crutches. You know what I'm talking about. 
When we believers also grow, and even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, it's a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait eagerly, or with wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. In verse 24 and 25, listen to how he concludes this. We were given this hope when we were saved. When did we get the hope? We got it when we were saved. We are children of God when we are saved. You are not a child of God until you become saved. Do you understand what I'm saying? All of humanity are not adopted children of God, no matter how many people with good intentions want to tell you that. Only those who have believed in Jesus have become children of God. Now, we are people, all of us globally, who have been created in the image of God, and we do reflect some of his glory even in our broken state, but we don't become the full reflection of God's glory until we surrender to Jesus Christ. And that image is restored. We become new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. If we already have something, Paul, asked, or Paul states, we don't need to hope for it. If you have it, you don't need to hope for it, right? Because you got it. But we look forward to something we don't yet have. We must wait patiently and confidently, he says. <clears throat> You've heard me state a few years ago, I read a book by John Burke, who is a pastor called Imagine Heaven. And this book changed my perspective of the end of life. No, nobody really wants to die. I mean, there are people who get into a bad psychological state that wish for it or who are physically to the point where they can't handle the pain anymore and they wish for it. But for the most part, the vast majority of humanity doesn't look forward to death. It's just something we fear. It's the unknown. We, we, we don't know what's beyond oftentimes, but the scripture reveals to us what is beyond for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who believe in God through Jesus Christ. And so, a few years ago when I read this book, I was going to uh, one of my best friend's funerals from college. He died of stomach cancer. It just took over his body. Just a couple years older than me. And I remember picking that up in the airport as we were flying to Florida and reading it, like voraciously reading it. Actually, it was a few years after he died I read that. And, and I remember... Oh my goodness, why am I so worried? God, who is a God of control and authority, is able to take care of anything and care for anyone. And so now I look with great anticipation. I don't fear death because I've seen a glimpse through the eyes of others of what heaven truly looks like. See, Paul is giving us descriptions, and so, does, uh, so do the apostles, and Jesus gives us descriptions. We go to the book of Revelation, especially the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, and we get a picture, a small slice, a snippet of what awaits us. It's got to be greater than anything we can imagine. So for now, we wait. And waiting means trusting. The practice of patience requires waiting on the Lord. And waiting 
means trusting. So let's look at what it means to trust. A key, to, a, a key idea to understand here is that Jesus uses this imagery of sheep a lot. You get into the Gospel of John. John recalls Jesus talking about sheep. John was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And listen to what John says Jesus was saying in John chapter 10. Hear me out. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They'll run from him because they don't know his voice. In an agrarian community that Jesus lived in at the time, there were shepherds. Yes, there were farmers who grew crops, barley, wheat, but there were shepherds and those who cared for and tended sheep and goats and other types of livestock. And it's interesting, even if you're not a farmer, you can look this up, you can see a farmer calling the sheep or the goats or the cattle in for feeding time or calling them in to be pinned up. And you can see somebody else trying to call those same cattle with the exact same phrase and the same tone, but those livestock won't follow any other voice except the one who is their owner. How do you know the voice of God? You can't walk at the pace of God unless you know the voice of God. And people ask me all the time, Brandon, I've never heard God talk. I never heard the audible voice of God either, but I've heard the still small voice in my own spirit to understand that it's him as opposed to anything else. Okay, Brandon, how do you tune yourself to hear that voice and to know it? It's like a mother who can hear a ba their babies cry among a whole room of kids, and they can distinctly hear it. How do you know God's voice like that? You have to spend time with them. You have to pray, but as much as you pray, you need to listen. James tells us to be slow to speak, slow to become angry, and quick to listen. How much more so is that in the case of our relationship to God through Jesus Christ? All right, well, what does God's voice sound like? Well, it sounds like words. And this is why John in his gospel uses this term in John chapter one. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Who's he referencing? Jesus. How did God create everything in Genesis 1? By speaking it into existence. And Paul gives us this imagery in Colossians that when things came into existence, they came into existence through Christ, and everything exists because of Christ, and it all holds together in Christ. 
So how do you hear that still small voice of God? You have to bury yourself in the word of God. The revelation of God through his word, his scripture. And then that special revelation of God, Jesus. Jesus isn't the meek and mild, weak kind of guy that he's often portrayed of in pictures. When you read the gospels, you realize he pulled no punches except with the rest of the world. He pulled no punches with the religious leaders who should have known better. But people who had been rejected by the religious elites of his day, he treated with kindness and mercy and gentleness. And he didn't tell them, you know, it's okay. You stay and continue to do what you're doing. Everything's going to be all right. I'm not going to condemn you. You just keep on doing what you're doing. Now, what's he say? In almost every circumstance and instance, he's hardest on the religious leaders, but those caught in act of sin or who were living contrary to God's desires for them through the teachings of the word, Jesus says, I don't condemn you, but don't sin anymore. Virtually every time you see Jesus interacting with someone who the rest of society had canceled, he's stepping into that canceled arena to bring them back to a place of wholeness, but he says, don't continue this pattern of behavior. And what the church often does is it speaks a word of condemnation to the world instead of a word of love. And so how are people to trust in a God when his people are untrustworthy? This is why Jesus was so hard on the religious leaders. Because they stake the claim in the ground, which rightly so, you have to stand on the firm foundation of the rock who is Christ. But we should live like Christ, behave like Christ, love like Christ. We should go into the highways and the byways and the workplaces where the world is. And we should be living a life that reflects the glory of God that is attractional to draw them into his presence rather than repulsive because we've got a chip on our shoulder as believers in Christ. This abortion debate that's going on right now with Roe v. Wade overturned and Dobbs overturned. I've been celebrating that because I believe in the sanctity of life from the womb, from conception on. You say, well, what about capital punishment? I don't, I haven't said this, but I don't believe in capital punishment either. I think if all life is sacred, then God, it's God's to take or not. But the reality is I'm celebrating but not with a chip on my shoulder. There's a way to strut around when you win. And it diminishes the glory of God. But there's a humility that all believers in Christ have been called to. That's why you won't see me post anything on social media because that is a den of thieves and robbers. I said this last week at Cambridge Springs when I was there as a guest speaker for their community-wide worship service, where there are many denominations represented and about the 500 people that were there. 
And I said social media is a place where believers in Christ shouldn't remain silent, but should be careful what they post. All too often we get sucked into the argument by using the tactics of the world rather than using the word of God in a way that elevates the truth and points to him. We get too emotional when we don't wait on God. When we're running faster than the pace of God, we do things that are stupid and that are damaging. You look at any character of scripture, you'll see that. David didn't run at the pace of God when he looked over from his, from his balcony down on the rooftop to see Bathsheba bathing. And he started to lust after her. He wasn't going at the pace of God. He was going at the pace of his own desires because he wanted her. And you see the snowball reaction of sin begetting, sin begetting, sin until he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. And Nathan reminds him, God is nowhere near you, brother. You have left the, you've left the racetrack. You're off in the weeds. And David repents. And Psalm 51, this great psalm of repentance, comes from that narrative where he realizes not only that he's done wrong, but he asks God's forgiveness. You hear me quote this often. Create within me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence, O Lord. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit within me. That section is a part of a longer treaties of repentance. You see King Saul before David running at his own pace. Do you remember when he was waiting on Samuel to come and make an offering of sacrifice before they went into battle? And the enemy was getting closer and encroaching closer upon the Israelite army under Saul's command. And Saul's getting nervous and he's like, something's gonna, and his own men, his own soldiers are saying, you gotta do something. They're coming, they're coming. And what happens? Saul decides that instead of waiting on Samuel, the prophet to come and make the sacrifice before they went into battle, Saul says, I'll do it. Not only did God reject the sacrifice, he rejected Saul. When you don't wait upon the Lord, when you do not trust the Lord for his perfect timing, you tend to make a mess of things. Waiting also means hoping. Galatians 5, 5, but we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness that God has promised us. Those are Paul's words. Paul also writes to Titus in chapter 2 of Titus, for the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying there? Do what's right. Live godly lives. Live lives of righteousness. Not just wishful thinking. Don't just do good deeds. Actually live what Jesus taught. 
while you eagerly wait and anticipate his coming again to set everything back to its perfect order. The word for hope in Greek actually refers to someone or something on which expectations are centered. We eagerly hope and we wait with expectancy. You know what it means to wait with expectancy? It's not like we're just waiting. You ever wait, waited in a doctor's office or in the emergency room? You're waiting expectantly, right? But you get frustrated at times, don't you? Um, I planted a garden this year for the first time. Do you know how often I go out and look? I've planted my seeds. Some of them are plants that I bought. I'm like, okay, every day I'm like, okay, is there anything new? Like something's going to appear overnight. With, with zucchini, they do, actually. They just pop on. Like, where did that come from? But you know what I'm talking about, right? You go out and you anticipate. You're anti- okay, what, ugh, hurry up. There's something exciting and fun about waiting and anticipating something to come to fruition. Those of you who are engaged or have been engaged, you're waiting in great anticipation for the wedding day. You hope and you're waiting and you know it's going to be great and you just can't contain it. But you know you can't jump ahead yet. When Paul mentions that as believers we wait with eager hope, what he means is that all of our focus, all of our expectations are centered on Christ and his return. And when we have this perspective in life, we're able to overcome even the darkest moments that we face. Instead of panic and fear, hope in Christ moves us to peace and perseverance. Biblical scholar and author Clarence Bentz writes, the Christian hope is more than wishful thinking about the future. It's even more than tentative expectancy. It's an overwhelming confidence that God will perform what he promises. The eager hope that believers have in Christ's return is a willful expectancy of things to come. Because our hope rests in Jesus, we can endure with grace any trouble that comes our way be it physical, mental, social, emotional, relational, or political. In the Apostle Paul, we can, like him, say, for our present troubles are small and they won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that we cannot see, for the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. That sounds like a a weird paradox or an oxymoron, doesn't it? How can the things we don't see last forever and the things we see are going to be gone eventually? It's because there is a spiritual realm, a reality of this spiritual realm, that where God is will be the final reality for all time. And those who have believed in him through his son Jesus Christ will get to expend that will get to spend that reality with him for eternity in a place we call heaven. Oftentimes mentioned in the New Testament as the kingdom of God. But those who reject him will not live in that reality, but will at 
die an eternal death in a place we call hell. And I know that's not a popular theological topic. We want everybody to go to heaven. Actually, God wants everybody to know him. It's not his will that anyone perish, but that all receive eternal life. But because God is a God of love, he opens himself even to rejection because he's not a forceful lover. He willingly leaves the hand outstretched for us to receive it, but some won't. Some will reject it to their dying breath. The last thing that waiting patiently does is it means anticipating. Romans 8, through 23, for we know that all creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time, and we believers groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a future taste of that glory. With regard to all of creation, have you heard of N.T. Wright? He's one of the great theologians and authors in England, was a part of the Church of England for a while as a leader there, a bishop there. He says, the creation isn't waiting to share the freedom of God's children, as some translations imply. It is waiting to benefit wonderfully when God's children are glorified. Why is that? This is so ironic. I taught this this morning. Why is, the, why is the whole of creation waiting for God's people to be glorified instead of waiting to be glorified itself? Because if you go all the way back to the creation narratives, who did God place as in dominion over the created order? Humanity. To tend it, to care for it as stewards of God. And so now, all of creation is awaiting that day when things are set right, when there's a new heaven and a new earth. They're awaiting for us to be glorified so that we can be in our rightful place as we had intended to be since the beginning of time. That's why creation groans anticipation waiting for humans to be glorified, God's people, that is, to be glorified. Wright goes further to explain that Paul's larger picture here locates this groaning on the map of all creation. At the center of this remarkable passage is one of his most vivid images of hope, that of birth pangs. The whole creation is in labor. Seems like it, right? I have, uh, my wife and I, or my wife has had four children. I've had a part to play in that. But I've been privileged and blessed to be there at the birth of them and to see the birth pangs. And they're painful. There's moments where you want to take the pain away from somebody, but you can't. And when, when, you, when you read this and what Paul's talking about and you see this analogous perspective that he's trying to share with us, it's true. It's like there's this screaming intensity of creation that death has had hold of since the fall. And we weep when we see it. On a global scale, things that are just horrific. I mean, like tsunamis that wipe out hundreds of thousands of people. Hurricanes and tornadoes, it's groaning. It's not a part of God's original design. It's a result of the fall. 
And so all of creation is waiting in great anticipation for God's people to be glorified so that we could have that rightful place of dominion over the new heaven and the new earth as God remains our King of kings and Lord of lords. One final thought from N.T. Wright. Paul moves at once to consider the present position of God's children in light of this future. We are, he says, longing for the time when we ourselves will be fully, finally redeemed, when, that is, we will receive our promised resurrected bodies. Do you know when Jesus rose from the grave, his body was different than the physical body that he had when he was buried in the tomb? When that physical resurrected presence that walked out of that tomb came out, it was transformed into a resurrected body. It still bore the marks and the scars of what happened. As he asked Thomas, put your hand in my wounds and in my side. See, it's me. And Thomas falls on his face before the Lord, saying, my Lord and my God. We too will have resurrected bodies at the second coming of Christ. And those bodies will not be subjected to death or degradation or disease or sadness or sorrow or pain. Those bodies will be renewed. They won't have the aches and pains that we do now. We can fall off roofs and be okay. <laughs> Amy Carmichael, I'm going to call our worship team forward to close this out this morning. Amy Carmichael, who's a missionary to India, she wrote these words. Blessed are the single-hearted, for they shall enjoy much peace. If you refuse to be hurried and pressed, if you stay your soul on God, nothing can keep you from that clearness of spirit, which is life and peace. In that stillness, you will know what his will is. And Augustine, great church father of the fourth century, he writes in his confessions, Great are you, Lord, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power and your wisdom here, and of your wisdom there is no end. And man, being a part of your creation, desires to praise you. Man who bears about with him his mortality, the witness of his sin, even the witness that you resist the proud. Yet man, this part of your creation desires to praise you. And then here's the kicker, listen to what he says. You move us to delight in praising you, for you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Question I have this morning is what pace are you going and are you resting in the Lord? Are you waiting upon the Lord to renew your strength? Do you trust in him? Because it's only then that you can mount upon wings like eagles, run and not grow weary, and walk and not faint. Have you become so consumed by the troubles of this world, by the news that you see every day? Are you so burdened and worried about what the future holds that you can't see beyond to the eternal future that is your reality if you are a child of God? Where are you? What pace are you going? Are you going at your pace? Are you going at God's pace? If you're going at God's pace, then sometimes you have to sit and wait. And while you sit and wait, you remain obedient to what he's taught you to do 
while you wait. And where do we find that? We go back to his word, the written word and the living word. The written word being his Bible and the living word, which is Christ. And the words of Christ you can find in four simple books called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Devote them to memory. Devote them to your life as you devote your life to him. If you're burdened this morning and you're walking at a pace that is not God's pace and you need to get back in alignment with him, but it's going to necessarily require you to walk back through some tumultuous terrain back to the path that he's called you to? You should do that today. We have a tradition where we come and pray at altars here. We have an altar to my right and to my left, kneeling pads on them. If you want somebody to come and pray with you because you just don't know what to pray, you, the message here has, has struck you in a way that you, you need to do something about it, but you don't know what to do, we have prayer warriors, people that will come and pray with you and lead you in those prayers to my right, your left. If you just want to pray alone, you know what you need to do, but you need time with the Lord, you come to my left, your right. If you're watching from home, you can do that in your living rooms. You could pull over if you're in your car listening to this. And just welcome the Lord into your presence. And say, Lord, I've been going at a pace that's not your pace. I've been going too fast or I've been going too slow. Help me to move at your pace. Would you pray with me? Father, I know oftentimes I go at a pace faster or slower than I should. I don't keep up with your pace for my own life and I know when I'm out of sync with you when I'm not running at your pace or walking at your pace that Lord I often do things on my own strength and my own power only to realize yet again I end up with a result that's far from what your your perfect desire is help me to remember what true surrender is like Help us as a church to truly eat, sleep, and breathe your word. God, to take you into ourselves, your Holy Spirit, to cleanse us. And for us to hear that still, small voice. And for us to submit to that voice as it leads. Remind us, God, that you love us even when we run out of sync with you. That God, through your gentle kindness and mercy, you convict us to draw us back into alignment with your purposes for our lives. We surrender to you today. We repent of the times where we've gone off the rails and we continue to plead and ask for your mercy, which we know is new every morning. Father, we love you, and we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.